Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. Now, some readers believe that today's guest is an international spy who's worked for MI5 and MI6. And while she has clarified that's not correct, her fascination with the world of espionage stemmed from her work on counterterrorism as a communications specialist. Writing under a non-diplume, this internationally best-selling author and former crime reporter has sold over two and a half million copies of her books globally. Well, this month, she connects with a new audience with her new work, The Chase. It's the first book in the action-packed thriller Alias Emma series. Now, I normally use the name of my guest here when I welcome them to meet the writers, but I'm not quite sure whether to welcome Christy Doherty or Ava Glass. (laughs) For today, I'm Ava. (laughs) But your real name is Christy, we should clarify. Yes, exactly. So what led you then to, uh, I mean, your your professional career started as a a crime journalist. What led you to that? You were just 21. Mm, Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I was one of those kids of the 80s who saw all the president's men and wanted to be a journalist. That was me. I watched an old movie at the time. It was already old. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to I wanted to uncover mysteries. And did you? <laughs> I think I did. I was a crime reporter in the murder capital of America for a while. I, I, I learned a lot. I got up close and personal with things I, I would perhaps later rather have not seen. It was, um, it was a real trial by fire. And it taught me how to write. It taught me how to think quickly. And it taught me about people, you know. So it was, um, it was a fascinating time. Mm. And then you moved into, into publishing. Yeah, there's this thing about crime writers as they get older. They get bitter. <laughs> and I didn't want to do that. I met some old crime writers and I thought, reporters, you know, crime And journalists. cynical yeah. too, don't they? Yeah, I didn't want yeah. to do that. That's yeah. not the way. And I decided I had to change. And so I got offered a job editing. I was freelance editing for a while in America. And one of the companies I worked for was a British company and they offered me a job in London. And I jumped at it, something completely new. Mm. And so what sort of work were you doing with the publishing house? It was just editing. I edited a lot of travel guidebooks. This was for Time Out Publishing. So I worked on the magazine a bit. I worked for their website a bit, just wherever they pushed you around, wherever they needed you, you filled a space. Mm. And that was grand. So that was a pretty cool brand at the time. What mm. makes this young American, she's moved to London, she's got this cool job, suddenly say, I know, I want to go and work for the civil service. <laughs> Well, honestly, I always, I, my career, it was not well planned out. <laughs> I honestly think it's more, it was like a series of, of runaway train accidents, you know. I, I ended up a crime reporter because I read a book. I ended up in London because I happened to meet somebody when I was a freelancer. And when the timeout job ended, and it ended because timeout, as those of us who were around then know, just basically ran out of money and gradually got smaller and smaller, I had to decide again as I had when I became an editor, what do I really want to do? I don't want to go back to journalism. Editing is, I could do that, but I'm not sure that's fulfilling me. And in the middle of that decision, an old friend got in touch. She just happened to call. And she said, I've taken a job working for the government. And I'm looking for somebody who can write about counterterrorism and not get scared. And I thought of you. And it seemed like like fate saying, go try this now. Go, this is something new for you. This will, this will interest you. So I said, yes. So let's unpick that Um, (laughs) because you are very adamant that you're not a spy and that your area there was communications. But what does writing about counterterrorism involve? Well, I think the problem was nobody really knew. So the job sounded great in a weird way. You know, it was after the 7-7 bombings. Everything in London was incredibly tense. 
I mean, I wouldn't take the tube at that time, you know, and I, I worked for the government. So it was that level of, of anxiety in the air. So I don't think they knew. They wanted somebody there who, if there was a terrorism attack, could be a voice for counterterrorism telling people, you know, basically, it's something as simple as don't go to King's Cross Station right now. Go to Marlebone. Don't go here, go there. And this is safe. And then nothing happened. You would think, goodness. But then they thought, because everything, there was a big program called Prevent that was going on then, where the counterterrorism guys were basically just finding weaknesses in England and then fixing them. They were constantly, it was a very fast-paced, I've never seen anything quite like it in my life. They would, you know, identify, constantly identifying weaknesses that they could fix outside a building, on a street, where I worked, you know, everywhere. It was Bollards were going up, protections were going up, cameras were going up, and they wanted someone to tell people that, to make them feel better. The only problem was the counterterrorism people didn't want to tell people anything. They are extremely secretive. <laughs> so my job became a series of long meetings where I would try to convince them to announce various things, and they would just go, we don't want to talk about that, it's quite secret. That, that's, that's a top secret program. And I'm like, guys, <laughs> you got to talk. So, yeah, that went on for a while. <laughs> you were working with spies. Mm. Was it possible to come close to any of them? Did you, did you become friends? How open could they be with you? It's funny because it's, um, it's a very disproportionate relationship. So, I mean, I was security cleared you know, up to my eyeballs so I could even go in the building and, and where they were. And even then, I believe there was a second security clearance that they didn't tell me about where I was befriended by a woman who basically asked me loads of questions. We hung out, we had lunch, we drank coffees, and then she disappeared completely from the system, from the government office I worked for, from the world. And after that, I met counterterrorism agents, and I realized, okay, I, don't, I, I think I just met my first spy, and I think I just passed my first test. But how sad. You got on, and then she vanished. I know. I know. It was, it was very odd. It was, it was quite... I, I did feel deceived, Nobody told me that was going to happen. The mm. people who were being very nice to me all knew and nobody mentioned it. I mean, they had to. But it's the thing. You don't talk about it. Nobody talks about any of that. I didn't even know who I worked with really who was a spy because it's a state secret if they are or aren't. And, and they're always going to say no, aren't they're they? Always going to th it is always Tom from logistics or it's Bob from legal, mm. you know, and, and there is no logistics. And legal is... Not where Bob is. And it's this, <laughs> and his name's not Bob. I was honestly there six months before I realized I didn't know anyone's real name. But they knew how much was in my bank account. They knew how much was on my credit cards. So it's, you see what I mean by disproportionality. It's, it's hard to be friends. But I think the thing is they knew that and I didn't. I honestly think, despite the fact that I was a journalist and that I would considered myself incredibly savvy, they thought I was charmingly gullible, completely honest. And so they did tell me stuff. They did befriend me. I did talk to them a bit. But I can't tell you now how much of that was true. Yeah. Or what you said. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but while you were there, one of the things that you were doing that presumably you weren't discussing with them was writing novels. <laughs> well, indeed. Um, so your first novel was Night School. It did incredibly well. Tell me about that and then the whole sort of chain of books that came after that. Well, I wanted to write about the world I was in, so the world of, of politics. I was having meetings in Number 10. I was going to these incredible buildings, these unmarked governmental buildings that are remarkable in Westminster and and just meeting people doing these fascinating jobs. But I obviously didn't want to break it. You know, I had signed the Official Secrets Act and I didn't want to write about my immediate job. So I decided to write about what it would, what it would be like to be the children of the people making these big decisions. It was a very 
a time of great political controversy, and as it is now, you know, of tension between various political ideologies. And I wondered what it would be like to look at that as a young person, to see such an angry political world, and if your parents were part of it, and you got drawn into it. So night school is, um, it's set at a boarding school, and where the kids are sent, you know, where they go in real life. And um, the kids are kind of caught up. They're, t- they're pawns in their parents' world because they're useful tools to access powerful people if you can target the kids. Mm. And um, they're all of it. Most of them are 16. They're very smart. And they're making up their minds about what they believe. So there's, yeah, because it's young adult, there's obviously battles. There's obviously drama. But there's also, I try to also include politics, a little knowledge, a little philosophy, and, um, yeah, a little romance. <laughs> uh, this led to a whole series of, of books, and, I mean, best-selling books. You, mm. you you did extremely well with that. You also wrote some fantasy books. In fact, you co-wrote them. How does co-writing work? It's a nightmare. <laughs> it was a, they're good books, I think. I do think they're good books. But it was very difficult. I mean, I, I do know how to how to make things difficult for myself. So, I mean, I worked with a, a friend who's still a friend. We survived this. She's French, and she is fluent in English, but not... So we wrote together. It's about a French boy and an English girl, and it's fantasy, which isn't my main forte. We wrote long distance, emailing chapters, chapter to chapter. So I would write a chapter, then she would write a chapter. And it was a fascinating experiment, but it was slow and and tricky. And although I like the books, I would never, ever do it again. Don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now we come to the birth of Ava Glass, mm. and we come to you turning to writing an adult spy novel. Now, when was that? What 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 position us here yeah. in, in terms of years? So I started writing this during the first lockdown. So just, I guess, two and a half years ago, give or take, mm-hmm. nearly three. So, I mean, m- mostly what, what publishers tell me, so, or certainly were telling me at that time, and when you look at what was out there, most spy fiction is written by men. Mm. And women are not meant to really want to read them and you completely bucked that trend and showed that it was not true. Yeah, well, I hope so. When I pitched it to my agent, she loved the idea. She told me to go write it, like immediately, before I'd even written the synopsis. But she also said, be careful, women don't read spy fiction. And men won't read books about women. Mm. So it's a tricky area to get into. But I had this idea. I could see this book in my head. I knew the spy in my mind. And I hadn't felt that way about a book in a really long time. Mm. And so I just thought, you know, to heck with it, I'm going to go write it. And let's just see what happens. And this, it was, it's much more based around the work that you did. I mean, in terms of taking inspiration from that. There was one particular thing that sparked the idea, though. What was the hook? Oh, do you mean the... Uh... Uh, camera finding you. Oh, God, yes, that. OK, so I was walking down the street in um, Walthamstow, where I lived a few years ago. And it was a quiet day. And the camera was one of the street cameras that wasn't on a corner. It was one of the very high poles. I think it must capture the whole street. And... Angled down to point at me. There was nobody else about, so I suppose it's... And then it, as I walked, it, it followed me. And I, I never really noticed it was even there before. And I kept... as I, It followed me all the way to the corner. And I just found myself thinking, who... I suppose it's automatic, but what if it's not? And who sees that? And why, why have I never noticed that camera before? That is creepy. So how many cameras are there in London? I mean, tell us a little bit about mm-hmm. this whole thing. I mean, I think there's more than 100,000 cameras. The exact number, I don't think anybody's ever precisely tallied them, but there's 100,000 cameras in London itself. And most of them, the majority are in central, in that square mile of central London. They are everywhere. And once you realise how 
omnipresent they are. The other day I was walking down one of those little pedestrian lanes that lead down from Fleet Street to the Thames. There's nothing there. They're just little shortcuts for tourists and people who live down there. There's tiny cameras up very, very high. There's nothing to protect. There's no doors. There's no reason for that to be there. They're just everywhere. Who's looking at this stuff? Mm, That's the question. I mean, (laughs) I I suppose a lot of different people. Some are businesses. The government has access to, I mean, I think most of them. I'm not sure any CCTV system is particularly um, secure. So I imagine the government has access to whichever cameras it wants to have access to. But I think it's all automated mostly now, unless there's something they're, they're particularly looking for. So, OK, back to back to Ava Glass and this first book of what is going to be a, a, a series. You've, you've got this wonderful heroine. Her name's Emma Makepeace, and she's a, she's a, a, a kind of trainee spy, a rookie, mm-hmm. I guess. And, well, you, you, you say <laughs> rather than me, which run. But it basically, it's, it's, it's around these cameras. Yeah. So in the book, it's her first major job. She's been on jobs, but this is her first big assignment. A Russian assassination squad is trying to capture the son of two Russian dissident spies who have who are seen as betraying the Russian government. They live in the UK. He's been raised in the UK. He sees himself as British. He's a doctor in the NHS, perfectly normal man. And suddenly his parents' past catches up with them. Now, his parents are in protective custody, so the assassination squad cannot get to them, but they can get to him, and that would be punishment enough. So she has to convince him to be saved because he doesn't see himself as in any danger he simply doesn't accept until it's impossible to deny what's happening. It's just to get him across town to a safe place. The Russians have hacked the CCTV cameras. The facial recognition software works better in daylight. So the action starts at 11 o'clock at night, and she has to get him across to MI6 headquarters on the south side of the Thames before dawn. An assassination squad is looking for them. They cannot be caught on camera. It's an impossible job, and she knows that from the start. She knows they're going to get caught, and that's the book. They're it's on the run. fascinating. I have to tell you, I found it so enjoyable. It was just a real page-turning. And just, I think the fact that, that you have kind of worked in that environment made it so much, so kind of relatable. And, you know, it's about jogging in, in Abney Park and Stoke Newington, and it's all of these places that we know. And then you think, oh, but there are cameras there. I mean, it quite freaked me out walking around London after I'd noticed that. Let's talk about Emma Makepeace because she is she's very likable. She's highly capable. She's also been described by some people in the press as the female James Bond. Is that your uh, was that your intention? I would say not exactly, but there are sort of two directions you can go with spy fiction. In my research, I read everything before I started writing. I read all the spy books I could get my hands, the canon of 20th century spy fiction. Oh, what fun. (laughs) It was very enjoyable. And so there's sort of two directions. You can go the John le Carré cerebral direction or what's seen as sort of the Ian Fleming more action, you know, direction. And that was the direction I kind of wanted to go. I saw this as a birthless books, not an analysis. So I don't. I do think it heads in that direction without actually being exactly the same because it isn't fantasy. There's no tuxedos. There's no mm. martinis. It's grittier. She's. It's more realistic based on what I saw and how I knew the spies. But it is also, yeah, it's it's fast. As you say, it's, I tried to make it as pacey as possible. Is Emma herself based on anyone real? She is actually. In fact, I dedicate the book to that first spy, the one who deceived me, the woman, because um, Emma looks like her in many ways. Yeah, I, I don't think I would have written this book if I hadn't met her. Well, I hope she sees it and recognises herself. <laughs> There's a number of other wonderful characters in it. I like Ripley, who's her, her mentor, her handler. But the one that I was really fascinated by was Martha. 
Now, she's a disguise specialist and she has, she's the overlord or the, the overseer of this fantastic kind of mm, library of looks. Tell us more about that. Okay, so when I was researching this, I read a lot of nonfiction books about, written by people who've worked in that world in the past. There's one called Moscow Rules that came out a few years ago and it talks about disguises and how important it was, it is, to spies to be able to change their appearance still today. So that, because if you look exactly the same think about it and your picture's on a wall somewhere or on a computer somewhere you can't look exactly the same in these days especially because of tech especially because of facial recognition mm. software you've got to change yourself so they used um and still use the, the tricks of hollywood they use prosthetics they use makeup they use wigs they use colored contact lenses they have ways that they can change the shape of their face by putting things inside their mouths i mean it's marvelous they actually hired people from hollywood in the 80s and 90s to advise them on this and they learned and they hired people from there so that's who martha is she comes to spying from basically shepherdton <laughs> That's where Ripley finds her when he's looking for clothing because they also have to like you can't expect spies on their income to go out and buy a different, you know, entire different attire for every project they're on, every mission. So I've given them a, a, basically a warehouse of clothing and disguises and Martha's in charge of it and she helps change their appearance so they look different every time. Fantastic. Now at the heart of this plot is also she doesn't know who to trust because of course we, we know the Russians have taken over the CCTV network but we're also unsure about what's happening at, at, at MI5. Is Has there been some kind of ruction there? She's not able to get in touch with her handler and so you've got all of this uncertainty plus underneath this there's one wonderful chase through London, beneath London, and then sort of in cars, and you write it so well, you can kind of absolutely see it being on television. Are there any plans for that? Well, I'm, I can say it's been optioned by the Ink Factory, which is the company that made The Night Manager. It's owned by John le Carre's sons. So I feel like it's ended up in exactly the right hands. They are right now working on a pilot. So, you know, we're instant in Hollywood, everything happens so slowly it makes book writing look fast so I'm, I'm in a hurry up and wait position yeah. but my fingers are crossed I believe they if anyone can do it they can yeah now of course one uh, television program uh, not so much about spies it was more sort of police procedural but in that kind of line uh, was Happy Valley that everybody in Britain seemed to be absolutely hooked on it became this water cooler moment everybody in the country was talking about it, it was drip fed to us once a week then you get this real-life horrible tragedy mm. of this woman, Nicola Bully, who was walking her, her Springer Spaniel by the river in Lancashire uh, and completely disappears. Mm. And I wonder how much of a connection there was between this huge nationwide interest in what had happened to her with sort of detectives who, were, who weren't detectives, with ordinary civilians mm. playing detective, turning up there, TikTokers coming to film themselves there, all manner of people turning up, thinking that they could solve the crime. And it just seemed to me that there was a correlation with that water cooler televisual moment of everybody thinking, that's fascinating, I can do that. Oh, what a great... I love that connection would make so much sense because I have spent a lot of time wondering what it was about this particular case that caught the zeitgeist because mm. 130,000 people go missing every year in this country which is a number that's mind-boggling wow. I mean every day I see in my Twitter feed people post have you seen this woman I mean a friend of a friend went missing a year ago in London and hasn't been seen since it's it's often women and but why ever so often these cases I mean there is nothing more bewildering and I don't know 
it makes sense that we become obsessed over this. I'm surprised it doesn't happen more often mm-hmm. in a way because it, it was as if she just vanished. And that's something that we are hardwired not to accept. Yeah. That people don't just vanish. They can't. Yeah. But unfortunately, they do. And we always want some kind of answer, don't we? And I mean, just bringing this back to real life again, I mean, you live in the south of England. Mm. And of course, that's where the the scriphole poisonings Mm. took place. And that was Russia absolutely doing, as you suggest in your book, kind of coming in and absolutely targeting somebody who was a former enemy. Yeah, that that was one of the big inspirations for the story, the plot, when I was looking for my who my victim would be, who my guy would be, who needed to be rescued. The scripple thing had just happened a year and a half before, painting nerve agent on the doorknob of a of a man who had 10 years ago given up all his secrets to MI6. He had nothing left to give. It was an act of pure cold revenge. And it also opened the door just for a minute for those who are paying attention to so much that's going on. The fact that there are a lot of ex-Russian spies who are connected to MI6, that they live here, that we protect them as a nation, and that Russia does not forget their Mm. crimes. All that for just a second we could see the Cold War wasn't over. There is a battle going on all the time that we don't see. And that's actually one reason why I wanted to set this at night in London, because there's something about the symbolism of a sleeping metropolis and nine million people in that city. And none of them knows that she's running across, you know, through the night, trying to keep this man alive as 15 Russian agents try to find him and kill them. Mm. Like that, it seems like madness, but at the same time, I'm completely convinced from time to time it happens. No, absolutely. I'm sure. I'm quite sure that you're you're right. Now, obviously, this book's got to go somewhere. Emma's a wonderful character. Where are you taking her? So book two actually comes out in fairly short order because of just the delays in publishing. So it will actually come out in September. So there's not long to wait for book two, which is called The Traitor. And in it, MI6 agent has been found. And this was actually, by the way, inspired by something that really happened uh, 10 years ago. So an MI6 agent then was found dead in his flat in a suitcase that was locked from the outside. And I've never, like, that has stayed with me. The police said it was suicide, and it's completely impossible. I still, I still find that, I don't believe it. And so in this book, I, I sort of recreate that crime and look at what might have actually happened mm. and why we might not have been told the truth about it. And then Emma is tasked with finding out not who, because she figures that out. They all figure it out very quickly who, but the why the why is what the thing they have to figure out, and the who helped them is the thing. So in this one, it doesn't take place as the chase does over such compressed time. We get a little more time, we get a couple of weeks, and Emma will go undercover on an oligarch's yacht to get the truth. Mm. Did you have to run this by any of your former bosses? I did not, actually. I'm extremely careful about what I include, and I'm writing things that are just far enough away from my own experience that I'm safe in that they know I don't know any more than they want me to know. (laughs) Uh, Why Ava Glass? Ava Glass, I mean, it's the reasons are, I knew I needed a pseudonym. That was agreed, because it's so different from anything I've ever written before. I wanted something simple and memorable. I wanted one syllable. I've never had a one-syllable name that everybody could spell. So I knew I wanted something basic. When I was a teenager, I was in love with the books of J.D. Salinger, and he wrote about the Glass family. All his books are about one family. And when I was, I wanted to be in that family when I was a kid. That's just what I wanted. They're they're a family with, they do terrible things. They fall apart, and I loved them. He made them so glamorous. And Ava's just, um, it's a a friend of a friend's name, and so I borrowed it. 
Fabulous. I want to talk about another name. It's a name, incidentally, of one of our um, our technicians here at Monocle, but it's also the name of your husband. Uh, now, he is a BAFTA-awarded filmmaker, Jack Dewars. Tell yes. us a little bit about his work. So Jack is, um, yes, as you say, he's a filmmaker. He makes primarily short films. Um, at the moment, he's working on a series called Inverse, which takes poems from the past, ancient poetry sometimes, and puts it into a modern film where it you see sort of the eternity of the old, the way that, that actually an, a 2,000-year-old poem can be as relevant today as it was then. And um, yeah, he's working on that now. And he's also written a book um, last year um, to challenge me uh, <laughs> <laughs> on my territory, on my turf. Um, how does that work, two writers sitting at home? Oh, incredibly well, actually. I, I'm actually, I, I feel really lucky because he's always the first reader of my books. He's incredibly wise about about plot and character because of filmmaking, because that's his, his obsession. So, yes, he, he always reads it first. He's honest with me. If I'm messing it up, he'll say the word if he likes it. He, he's the most enthusiastic fan you can ever imagine. And so when he wrote his, he wrote a historic crime novel last year called The Lost Diaries of Samuel Pepys, which I adore and uh, which just came out a few months ago. And I highly recommend that as well if you like historical 17th century crime. So, yeah. And any chance of him making films of your books? He has actually made... I keep saying actually, I can hear it. <laughs> he has made... Jack has made a series of Night School for the web. So short films that were set in the Night School world. And I wrote the scripts and he filmed them. And um, they're still... They've got two million views on YouTube. They, they did remarkably well. And we'd love to do more together. I'd love that. That would be great. All we need is um, a producer and some money. <laughs> <laughs> Ava, do you think you could make a good spy? And I think I'd be a terrible spy, and I think they always knew that. And I think that's one reason they liked me. I'm far too honest. I can't lie convincingly to anybody. No, I'd be terrible. And I, and I think that <laughs> that um, kind of inability to deceive uh, was one of the things that made them that hang out a bit with me more than maybe they would have otherwise. So, I mean, but to spies generally, aren't they? I mean, I suppose I'm thinking of James Bond here, but meant to be, you know, utterly charming and all the rest of it. Are you saying that, that actually under that they're just terrible liars? <laughs> I don't mean terrible as in they can't do it. I mean, they do it a lot. <laughs> I think that is, they are incredibly charming. Charm is a valuable skill. If you want, what you want to do is as quickly as possible get the information you came to get and then get out again. That's the ultimate goal, I should think, for any spy. So charm is a great way to get people. That's how they got information out of me. I mean, the spy who fooled me, the woman, she charmed me. You know, she became a friend. She befriended me. That's that's marvelous. And so, yes, I think they are charming. They just don't have to dress up particularly to do it. It all depends on which world they're in. Yeah. That they want to fit into that world seamlessly. Well, you can read all about it in Alias Emma 1, The Chase. It's published by Penguin Random House. It's out now. It's by Ava Glass, uh, who does have another name, but I don't think we really need to, to use it, seeing as that's for other books and for her private life, which for the moment shall remain so. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ava... Thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to Meet the Writers. Thanks also to the production team of Nora Hull and Andre Nikolai Pominchurin. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>